Bless him. All right. Okay. It's good to be sharing God's word with you again. Good to see you all here this morning. And we're looking back at Genesis chapter 43 this morning as we continue our look at the life of Joseph. It's been a blessing uh, putting these sermons together and uh, sharing these with you. They've been a blessing to me and I hope they've been a blessing to you as well. And today we're looking at Genesis chapter 43. And we'll start off with verses 8 to 14 as we seek to complete this chapter today. So Genesis 43, verse 8. Can you hear me okay at the back? Is that loud enough? Yeah. Okay, Genesis 43, 8. And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou, and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him, if I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels, and carry down the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand, and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carried again in your hand. Peradventure it was an oversight. Take also your brother, and arise, go again unto the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for this precious word that you have preserved it for us, that you have ordained it to be the source of our uh, life. And through it, we find you, we learn more of you, and we have discovered uh, your ways and what you would require of us. And so this morning, we pray that you would open up our eyes to your truth, that you would grant us the grace we need to not only understand it, Heavenly Father, but that we might live it fully and so we thank you for the work of your spirit within our hearts the one who has sealed us until that day of redemption when we will see our savior face to face but until then we pray that we would be faithful in all things that we would be your children as lights in this world we pray in jesus name amen there's an old italian saying that says sometimes life throws hot water on a wound ever had hot water thrown on a on a wound before what a nice feeling. Um, a famine had arrived. Just to recap what was happening here uh, with Jacob and his, uh, and his family, a famine had arrived in Canaan. It started in Egypt. Uh, obviously, Joseph was in Egypt and he'd been, made, he'd been made ruler of Egypt. But back in Canaan, the, uh, the famine had arrived with a vengeance. And Joseph had sent his 10 sons without the youngest one, Benjamin, off to Egypt to buy some grain because they had heard that Egypt had a surplus and they were selling it to people. But when they arrived, things went terribly wrong. <laughs> it went from bad to worse. The ruler of Egypt accused them of being spies, demanded that they bring back their younger brother to prove their story, and then held Simeon, their brother, hostage until that time. So they head back home and they arrive back home and they told their father all this story of what had happened while they were there. 
And when they arrived home, they were mortified to find out that when they opened up the sacks that were on their donkeys, essentially, the money that they had supposedly paid for the actual grain that they had brought back home was still in their sacks. So both uh, the sons and the father feared about what was going on here. And Reuben, if you remember, called to his father and said, Dad, if, uh, if send Benjamin with me, I'll take him back to Egypt and I'll get this thing sorted out. And if, and, you know, if I don't do it, you can kill my two sons, which just wasn't the very best uh, option out there. Nevertheless, he put up his hand. I don't think his father took it. Um, but Jacob was horrified at the thought of losing another son. You see, he had lost Joseph many years before, thinking, I've only got one son of Rachel left his beloved wife, who had already passed away, and he's thinking, well, if I send Benjamin, I'm going to lose him as well, and there'll be nothing left connecting me to my wife. And so he was very reticent to, to send Benjamin off with them. Not that he didn't trust his sons, but he didn't trust them. That was basically it. Um, they had messed up before. They had made plenty of mistakes before. And if you recall, it was their fault, really, that what had happened with Joseph in the first place. And he did blame them to a certain extent, even though he didn't know the full story. How do you trust something precious to you to someone else? You know, I know some fellows who love their cars. They take care of them, polish them all the time, look after them. And if you were to ask them for a loan of the car, They'd say no. See, so why are so many women shaking their heads here? Well, they won't lend it to you either by the looks of it. How do you trust that which is precious to you? In this particular case, Benjamin was precious to him. You might say he was his favourite son, um, but he was the youngest and he was precious to him. How do you entrust something so precious into the hands of someone else? Sometimes that can be very, very difficult especially when you've been burned before. You know, if you'd lent your car or you'd allowed your house to be used by someone else to stay there and they trashed the place or they smashed your car or they did something wrong, you know, if you were to do it again, you'd be, yeah, what do they say? Once bitten, twice shy. And Joseph, sorry, Jacob had been burned before. He'd lost his youngest and most favourite son. Um... He didn't want to risk losing another one. But Judah now steps up. Judah puts up his hand and says, Dad, send him with me. I will uh, take the full responsibility. If uh, I don't bring him back, I'll bear the blame forever, which is an interesting phrase, to bear the blame forever. Um, I'll take the responsibility for the safety, for a good outcome, to bring Simeon back home, who was being held captive in, in Egypt. Uh, and in a sense, uh, what uh, Judah proposed became a prophetic promise of what Christ had done for us. So look at verse 8 for a moment. And it says there, And Judah said unto Israel his father, so Israel was Jacob's other name that God had given him, and Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, 
and we will arise and go, uh, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. You see, they were in danger of starving again. And I will be surety for him. Now, keep an eye on that word, surety. Of my hand shalt thou require him, if I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, which means bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned the second time. So he's saying to his dad, dad, we've got to make a move here. Um, and I'll bear the blame if anything goes wrong. I'll be surety for him, which means I'll put myself in his place. If something goes wrong, if, if they want to keep him there, if they want to, if they want to bind him there and, and hold him a captive, I'll put myself in that position. And we're going to see this happen later on where he offers that. And so Jacob or Israel now thinks of that matter and he demonstrates faith. He now begins to trust Judah. And it's interesting because Judah wasn't the oldest, Reuben was. And we didn't trust Reuben's uh, promise. But now it looks if he's changed his mind now that Judah's come up. And Judah, we understand, and Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And Judah becomes a picture of Christ. The picture of Jacob saying to Judah, okay, you go now and do this, becomes a picture of the trust that God the Father put in his son, Jesus, to save us. You see, he was, he was willing to send Judah as the main person who would free Simeon, who was in bondage uh, in Egypt, to bring him back home and to trust the safety of Benjamin as well. And so God the Father, we know, sent his only begotten son into this world, trusting him to rescue us from our bondage and all the while securing his own and making sure that his own perfect nature was never defiled. Judah became the surety, the guarantee. He was a guarantee, and so was Jesus, the guarantee that we would be saved from bondage to sin. Jesus became our surety, and Jesus literally took our place. Turn with me to John chapter 6 for a moment, because as we look at Jacob now and trusting Judah with the leadership of this, this next mission back into Egypt to save Simeon and to bring Benjamin safely back home to him, we see these words of Jesus. Now consider Jesus in the same position as Judah. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now let me ask you a question. How many has Jesus lost? of all that the Father has given him? The answer to that is absolutely zero. None. Jesus has not lost one person from the time that the church started, from the first person that was put into his care till now, Jesus has not lost one person. So you know what that means for you and me? We can't be lost. If you're saved this morning, you cannot be lost because that 
because what this scripture is saying is that it's not up to us to get ourselves home. It's up to him. Because this would not make sense if it was up to us to keep ourselves saved and, and live the perfect life or somehow if we didn't do good enough, we were, we were going to lose what was given to us as a gift. These words wouldn't have no meaning because what's Jesus saying then? I lose nothing. It's not up to him. It's up to us then. But the truth of the matter is, is that salvation is not up to us. It's up to him. Both from the beginning, in the middle and at the end. And Jesus promises that every person that the Father gives to him, that is entrusted to his care, he will not lose. And Jesus has not lost one person who comes to him and says, I'm going to put my faith in you. I'm going to trust you to bring me home. And so Judah now becomes a picture of Jesus going down to Egypt to the place where there's, things aren't really good. And Jesus came into a world that was very dark to rescue us and bring us back home. So we are Simeon. We are Simeon, who was held captive. And Jesus is that perfect character who lived the perfect, the spotless Lamb of God, who lived the perfect life, who did not fail or fault even once. So Jacob was willing to send his sons, including Benjamin, now to Egypt on Judah's promise, on Judah's commitment. He was the guarantee. And we see this in the very next verse. So go back to Genesis chapter 43, verse 11 to verse 13. It now says, And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, right, if it's got to be like this, do this. Now he's going to give them some advice. He says, Take of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present carry down joseph and he didn't know it was joseph he just knew it was the ruler of egypt carry down the man a present a little balm and a little honey spices and myrrh nuts and almonds and take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks carried again in your hand bring it back peradventure it was an oversight Take also your brother and arise, go again unto the man. So Jacob offers his son some, some fatherly advice. It's all right. If you're going to have to go, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this guy. I want you to bring him a gift. All right. Now he's accused you of being spies and all that sort of stuff, but I want you to bring him some gifts. And so he says to him, carry down you know, the best fruits and carry down a balm and, and a honey and spices and myrrh. When I was talking to Alan about this particular passage a few weeks ago, he reckons that's a perfect recipe for baklava. Alan, he's always got the answers, isn't he? As you mix up all these things and you make baklava. And I thought, hey, he could make baklava. <laughs> and baklava would be quite nice, you know, while you're having a famine to have that, you know, that, uh, that delicacy there. But he says, look, don't bring a lot. He says, bring a little bit of this and a little bit of that. A little bit of balm as well. You know, you know those hot winds, when they come up from the south, they dry your lips. You put a bit of balm on the lips. On top of this, make sure that when you go back, just to show him that you're sincere and that you didn't do it on purpose, bring back double the money. Because you brought back all the money. You didn't pay for the, the last lot of grain that they delivered to us. They didn't know what, was, what went on there. But he says, bring back double to show him that you're honest, that you, you didn't do it on purpose. 
and more importantly, bring Benjamin so we can get Simeon back. So they could fulfill their promise and hopefully have their brother released. And so by this time, Jacob had not only given in to the idea that Benjamin would now be brought to Egypt, but he also came to the conclusion, and this is the first time we read that, that Jacob starts to mention God in the equation. You see, after this point, we don't hear God's name being mentioned. They're all just freaking out about what was going on. They thought, this is it. We're goners. You know, they're going to, it's all over. Everything just looked bad and just kept getting worse every time they turned a corner. But now he looks and thinks of God as he's about to send his sons back into Egypt, which is a good sign. He started to realize that the God they served wasn't affected by borders, by countries, by cultures, by anything really. And he began to realize that he'd maybe missed the, the point here. And so we're going to see, and I would like to examine, first of all, the type of faith that Jacob is about to demonstrate in God. And but before we do that, though, what I'd like to do is to look at what the relationship is between faith and hope. Ever thought about that? How does faith affect hope or how does hope affect faith? Turn with me to Galatians 5.5 5 for a moment. Because within Jacob's words, we find not only faith, but we find a hope. But it looks a little bit more complicated than just something superficial. Galatians 5.5 5 says, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, right? So the answer to how one leads to another is that faith leads to hope, okay? Faith leads to hope. If you have no faith, you can't have hope. I need to have faith in something or someone in order for hope to be the, the, the thing that I hold on to, okay? If I have faith in the Lord, then my hope rests in the Lord and rests in his promises. If I have no faith in the Lord, it doesn't matter what he promises me. I don't have a hope. So, so faith leads to hope. Without faith, you can't have hope. And the strength of our hope and the strength of Jacob's hope here is determined by how much faith he has. And so faith, if you look at it, other words that it can be used to describe faith, faith is, can be described as having a confidence in or being able to trust. Okay, So Jacob had to trust his son Judah to a certain extent and also had to have confidence in his ability to be able to see this promise through. And so we find Jacob's faith begin to be revealed here in the power of God to be able to do something. But not just the power of God. You see, when we look at, when we think of faith, we often just limit it to the power of God. I have faith that God will cure, you know, my brother or my sister. I have faith that God will provide me for a job, will provide a job for me if I haven't got one. Oh, I have faith that God will provide us a place to worship. I have faith that God will do this and that and the other, okay? 
He has the, the ability, the power, the wherewithal to be able to answer our prayers because he is almighty. But the question is, do I have faith in his character? You see, because that's just as important as his attributes. Look at, go back to Genesis 43, 14 again. Because what I'd like you to do is to think about carefully what Jacob has faith in. Does he have faith in God's power? Does he have faith in God's character? Does he have faith in something else? If you look at verse 14, it says, And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your brother, your other brother, and Benjamin. And if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, that's an interesting way to finish that one off, isn't it? So he prayed the Lord would grant mercy to them from that man that he didn't know was his own son. He's, so the faith he has is that God is able to sway the heart of an unbeliever, maybe an evil man, so that that evil man would have mercy on his own sons. So that's faith in the power of God to affect the heart of a man. Okay? That he can somehow sway the heart of a, a stranger, someone he has no, ability, uh, uh, no uh, awareness of and no uh, information really about. But you'll notice he calls him here, God, is he just mighty? No, he is almighty. So the God that he puts his faith in is almighty. There is no limit to what he can do. Can he change the heart of someone? Yes, he can. Can he bring them safely to Egypt? Yes, he can. Can he make sure that everything goes smoothly? Yes, he can. And so we believe, and when we pray for our, our unsaved friends and family, I'm sure you have, right? What are you praying for? Think about that just for a moment. When we pray that, that God heals someone of a sickness or an illness or a disease or an accident, right? We're saying God has the power to be able to physically change that person. When we pray for the salvation of a loved one, what we're saying is God has the power to be able to affect the heart of someone. That God is able to open up the eyes of someone to a truth they didn't realize before. That God is able to sway the heart of a person who is not saved. And Jacob, When Jacob prays that God Almighty gives them mercy before the man, He's putting his faith in the power of God to sway the heart. And we see that Jacob had this hope. He believed God was able to bring them home safely. But he was also prepared to lose his children as well. You see, they're two different things, really, when you think of it. One, he trusted in the power of God to answer that prayer, his desire, right? But he also then prayed and he also understood that there was a chance that if God didn't want it, he may not bring his children back. And he says, if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So what's that trust? Is that a lack of faith? Is that like saying, I pray for something and I don't believe that God's going to give it? No, the answer is no, because you can pray for something with full confidence, but yet Say, Lord, if it's not your will, I'm going to take whatever you give me because I trust your 
character. I trust that whatever you've got going on, whatever you know that I don't know, that you will make the best decision. You see, and that's where, that's where genuine joy comes from in knowing the Lord. You see, we often pray with a very limited vision in front of us. I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of things. There are plenty of things in my life I have absolutely no idea about. I sit here today, and I know many of you quite well. Some of you I know more than others. But if you were to ask me how well I know your mind and your heart, I have to say I'm very poor. If I'm praying for you, I don't know you that well. But I know God knows you. Okay. So when I pray for you and I, I ask for something good for you from the Lord, what I'm praying is that, and I'm hoping, I'm praying according to his will. Because he may be leading you through something which may ultimately actually bring you a better result than what I'm praying for you for. I may be praying to release you from some sort of suffering that you're going through or for some sort of a situation that you might be in. And it may be God himself who's allowing you to go through that because it's the best thing for you. Do you see? So ultimately, whichever way God answers that prayer, whether he answers the way I'm praying or whether he answers in a totally different way, the question is, what am I trusting in? Yes, I trust in his power, but you know what, Lord? If it's your will, I know you can do it. But if it's not your will, then open up my eyes to understand what's going on. Because I'd like to understand. We like to know things, don't we? Yeah, and sometimes we don't. God chooses not necessarily to give us the full picture, but that's okay because that's where trust comes into it. You know, when you're a little kid growing up and a lot of things you want to do and then mum and dad say, no, you can't do that and you can't do this and, you know, I want to eat lollies before I go to bed and you can't do that. You don't necessarily know all the details, do you? But your parents do. Sometimes they do. But that's where trust comes into it, you see. As children, we are, we are trusting our father that he knows a lot more information about what's going on in our lives and the lives of people around us that we say, you know best. If I'm praying for something, lead me into the right prayer too, that it's done according to your will because I may be praying for something that may not even be right. My intention would be right, but I don't necessarily know that to be the case. So the question is, did Jacob have faith in God? The answer to that is yes. Not just in his power, because he is almighty, but also in his character. And that whatever transpired, even if he lost his most precious son, Benjamin, he's going to say, if I be breathed, I'll be breathed. I'm going to trust that to you. And so Jacob had this hope in God. And he also has faith in God. And so when we consider our own prayers, let's pray in a way that has full trust that God can do anything that we ask him, but at the same time, have trust in his character that whatever the outcome is, knowing that he has the full power to do it, that he's done the right thing, because he always will. The faith you have in God's power will give you hope as well. If you have faith in God's power, in his character, then regardless of what the outcome is, you know that he loves you always and that nothing changes. And he loves the people that you love more than you even love them. So 
If something goes wrong from our perspective, from an earthly perspective of someone that you love, you might say, oh, does he really love that person as much as me? The answer to that is an emphatic yes. He loves them more. Not as much as you, more than you. So when we pray and we bring our loved ones and our families and all stuff before him, he loves them more than we do. So we should always be prepared for that. He is not only the perfect person who loves, he is fully aware of every circumstance. He is fully, he has full power over all things. He is the perfect judge who knows all the details of every wrong that's ever been done and he will bring everything to full justice. Every detail that we don't see, he already knows. He knows what's happening, not just the details that are happening up to this point. He knows what's already going to happen in another hour, in two hours, in a day, in a week, in a month. He knows that well in advance. So if you have faith in him, you have hope in him. And the hope is ultimately in him, in his character, not in circumstances. Our hope is in the living God. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, you know, when things got really bad for Paul and he was being whipped and stoned and, you know, managed to get himself in two shipwrecks and all things were going wrong, he was being kicked out of, out of towns and, and, uh, and, and ostracized by his own people, when things were going really bad, he writes these words and he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You see, the circumstances didn't bother Paul. They bother us sometimes. We think of our circumstances, we say, Lord, how can you let me go through this? Or that, or that golden classic, what did I do to deserve this? What did the Apostle Paul do to deserve two shipwrecks? What did the Apostle Paul do to actually deserve being beaten and stoned and whipped? What did the Apostle Paul do to deserve being in a prison in Rome and ultimately losing his life for the Lord? Did he deserve that? You see, when we start saying, asking questions like, what did I do to deserve this? What we're saying is, God, I don't trust your character here. You're not playing by my rules. And my rules say that you need to protect me from any problem that's going on here. That's the agreement I made with you. You see, when I, when I made an agreement with you, Lord, you were meant to protect me from all types of problems in this world from all types of sicknesses and from all types of, you know, bad people doing bad things to me. And the Lord says, oh, I forgot that wasn't in the, it wasn't in the contract. Jesus actually says, you know, if you, uh, if you follow him, there's one thing he guarantees, and that's suffering. So Paul the Apostle says, what's going to separate me from the love of Christ? Was it that shipwreck I had last week? Was it these scars that I've got on my back from being whipped a number of times? Was it this massive uh, 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 crack in my head that I got when that stone hit me, when they were, when they were uh, stoning me to death? Is it that? No, he says. Nothing. There's nothing that actually can happen to me that can ever show me that he doesn't love me. And that is a life of faith. Because your, your faith is not in your own, your, your own 
plan for your life, your faith is in his character, that it never, ever changes, that everything he says about himself and about you is true. And it's, and it's believing in that. And that gives great hope. The exact point is that nothing can change God's love for me, despite what happens to you or me. Jesus' love for us is always perfect. And Jacob had this faith in God. He believed that God could save his children, bring them all back safely. But he said, you know what, Lord? It's in your hands. Let's continue. Genesis 43, 15 then says, And the man, I'm sorry, and the men took that present. They listened to their dad and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home and slay and make ready. Not kill them. Slay means they, they, they killed a, a lamb or something like that or a goat and they, and they prepared the food. And slay and make ready for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the men did as Joseph bade, and the, men, the man brought the men into Joseph's house. So, so the brothers head down to Egypt. They've arrived there, and who, lo and behold, who's there? Joseph again. And so they follow the instructions of their dad. They see Joseph. Joseph sees them, and he calls his steward of his house, the ruler of his house, and said, go and take those guys to my place, to our place. And I want you to start getting ready lunch for them because they're going to be eating at my place today and so you've got to put yourself in the in in the shoes of these brothers they've come back down to egypt they are probably fretting about what's going going to happen next and then they hear oh you're having lunch at his place today now how confusing would that be this guy has been holding our brother hostage now for for who knows how long for weeks and weeks and weeks and now he wants us to have lunch at his house. Um, okay. This is the same guy who accused us of being spies and wanted to hold us all here captive. What was going on here? And you, you, you can see their mind ticking here. You can actually see it because you're thinking, why would he want us to go to his place? This is some trap that he's got set for us. He's going to bring us to his house. He's going to show something's gone wrong and then he's going to have us all killed here and you can see this actually uh playing around in their minds when it says in verse 18 and the men were afraid they weren't happy that they were heading to his house for lunch they were afraid last time you were you were afraid when you were invited to someone's house for lunch was when it says and the men were afraid because they were brought into joseph's house and they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time as uh, we bought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. So they thought to themselves, this is his way of actually turning us into slaves. If you were a criminal in those days, they didn't have many jails like we have today. Okay, you didn't have they didn't have these these, these complex prison systems that we have today. You know the way you uh, you paid out your um, your wrongdoing, you became a slave to that person. Okay, you ended up working it off. And these guys were thinking, oh no, if he gets us in the house, he's going to play out this scenario. We're going to be sitting ducks, and he's going to turn us all into his slaves. Once again, 
the boys didn't have much faith. They imagined always the worst. Their mind always goes to something that's, that's, that just can't be any possibly worse. They imagined the very worst for them. And they filled in, ever done that? You know when things start going wrong, your mind fills in the gaps? Ever done that? Or where you try to, where someone does something to you or something happens and you automatically say, oh, that person did that for that reason. And it was like never that reason in the first place. But we fill in the gaps. Please, don't fill in the gaps. Don't waste your time filling in gaps. We often think that we're very smart, that we actually can, can judge what the motives of someone and why they do things. But I'll guarantee you, being in ministry for this long, you will be 90% wrong. Because most of the things our mind, our natural mind takes us to are worse than what they actually are. So we often imagine someone doesn't like me because he didn't say good morning to me this morning. Huh? When, someone, when someone goes right by you, what is your mind, where does your mind normally take you? It normally, normally thinks bad. It normally tries to fill in the gap by, by assuming something bad is going on. And so this is naturally what the brothers are doing over here. So my advice to you, my, my, uh, my counsel to you this morning is, if you're not sure about the motive that someone's done something, don't assume the worst. The Bible says love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So believe good. And I'll tell you, if you believe good, if you actually, if you actually when something doesn't go, doesn't go right, assume the better. You won't then approach that person with a bad attitude. Ever heard of a self-fulfilling prophecy? People love doing that. We assume something is wrong with someone else. And then what ends up happening is we change the way we approach them. And then we actually end up hurting them without realizing, but we think they've hurt us first. And then we start playing this game. And that's how the devil manages to break down families, churches, friendships, and everything else. So believe all things. Believe good for others. Okay, so they're stuck in a situation where they don't want to go in the house. And they think to themselves, this is a trap. So what do you do when you think there's a trap on the other side of that door and you're too afraid to go in? You know what? You've looked for a mediator. You look for someone who you can share your burden with, who may be able to understand you, who understands what you're going through and who can actually is trusted by the other person as well, right? Okay, so look at what it says here. They're looking for someone now who is sympathetic to them. And this guy, the ruler of, of Joseph's house, looks like, a, looks, looks like a reasonable guy. Okay? And they said in verse 19, And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door. They didn't want to go in. They're waiting at the front door. Let's have a chat with this guy before we go in. And said, Oh, sir... Uh, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food and it came to pass when we came to the inn and we opened our sacks and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight and we have brought it again in our hand and other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put 
our money in our sacks. Look at that. A full confession before they went in. We don't know how what happened. I mean, they were telling the truth, essentially. They, they, weren't, they weren't making it up. But they were looking for someone who would understand them. They were looking for, and what they needed was a mediator. Because if Joseph was playing the game here, if they couldn't trust Joseph, who could be the go-between? You know, mediators have played a crucial role in this world from the very beginning. Medi mediators are required often to bring peace between two parties. I'm not sure if you've ever played the role of a mediator or if you've relied on a person to mediate between you and someone else who can be that go-between, but that is a blessed role to play. It's a, it's a dangerous role if you try to be a mediator because you can be dragged into one or the other or you can be attacked. That's pretty common, actually. But it's a beautiful thing to be a mediator. You know, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is actually full of mediators. There's plenty of instances in the Bible where mediation takes place. You know, Moses is an interesting character because Moses, God wanted to destroy Israel at one stage. Remember when they'd fallen and they'd rebelled and, and God said, I'm going to destroy these people. Moses, I'll start again with you. And what does Moses do? No, Lord. These are your people. And Moses plays the mediator between God and his own people. God wasn't going to destroy them anyway. Okay? God already knew exactly what was going to happen. But Moses played the mediator between God and Israel. When, uh, when the apostle Paul got saved, remember his name was Saul? And he had a pretty bad reputation because he was the one who was organizing all these persecutions of all the Christians in Jerusalem. And then he was even heading off to places like Antioch to try and chase down these believers. And so he had a bad reputation. When he gets saved, he, um, he decides to go down to Jerusalem and say hi to the boys, to the apostles over there. How were, they, were they happy about that? No way. This guy's been killing us. He's been throwing us into prison. It's because of him that we've been going through all this persecution. And who played the mediator? Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who knew Paul, who was trusted by the apostles already. He already had a great reputation and a wise reputation. And he brings in Paul and he goes, look, I know this guy. It's genuine. I trust him. And it was because of Barnabas playing the mediator that Paul was then brought in and received as a believer in the early church. So we got Moses and Barnabas. And here in this particular case, we have this ruler in Joseph's house. So let me ask you, where do you go to, to find a mediator? Where do you find a mediator for you? The Bible tells you where there's a mediator. There is a mediator who understands you perfectly, who understands the other party perfectly, and who is sympathetic to both. And that, the Bible says, is Jesus Christ. You see, 1 Timothy 2.5, if you have that in your, you want to turn that in your Bibles, you can. I'll look at two scripture references here because this, this, um, this ruler in uh, Joseph's house becomes a picture of Christ. You see, they stay outside the door until he gives them the okay. 
until he gives them the actual good news. So the perfect mediator between God and us is Jesus Christ. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, so Jesus becomes the mediator between God and us. And how is he a good media? Actually, go to, go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Look at one more passage just to show us that there's another. There's, there's a few references to Jesus being the mediator. Hebrews 9, 15 says, And for this cause, he, that's Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament. Now don't get confused with the language. What that means is he is the mediator for this new agreement that we've entered into with God. He is the one who makes sure that everything is, is right between those two parties. He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, the first agreement, that the law of Moses, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So that Jesus is not just a mediator from a from a a personal perspective between us and God and that relationship that has been established by Christ, but also he is the mediator of this whole agreement. He is the one who made sure that all of the details of this agreement are, are good for both parties. Okay? And he's the one who makes sure it's going to be followed by both parties. You know why Jesus is a perfect mediator between God and man? Because he is both God and man. He's both. And so there is no, no party on either side that can say, oh, you don't understand me. No, he understands us. He understands God perfectly. He's perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient. He's without blemish. So from God's perspective, he's perfectly trustworthy. He's his own son. He represents him perfectly. But in addition to this, when he came down to this earth and he lived as a human being like us, he lived it perfectly. He died for us. He showed us nothing but love. And there is nothing we can point the finger at him and say, hey, you don't understand me. The Bible says that he understands us perfectly. In every way that we are tempted, he was tempted. He went through suffering as we go through suffering. He understands us. The Bible says he understands us. He sympathizes with us. And that's why he is the perfect, perfect mediator between us and God. And so how do, how do these brothers, let's go back to these brothers now. How do these brothers do with their mediator? Well, the first thing they do is they confess the whole situation. We came with money. We head back home and our money's still with us. We've got no idea how I was there. We had, that wasn't our intention, but either way, you didn't get your money for the food you gave us and we're sorry about that that's why we brought it back before they entered the house they shared they 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 confessed what they had done they confessed it and they said we didn't know what was going on and how did he respond which would have probably confused them even more because verse 23 then says and he said Peace be to you. Fear not. Your God 
and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And he brought Simeon out unto them. And the men, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and what they washed their feet and he gave their asses provender or food. So what a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us when we come to God through him. He is our mediator. You can't step through the door until the mediator brings you in. He releases your brother. He says, God bless you. Be at peace. He grants you peace. He tells you that you have no reason to fear. He's the one who says that God, God will give you, has given you treasure. He's the one who invites you into the house. He gives you water, living water. He cleans you, makes you presentable, makes you fit to be able to dine in the actual house and he releases your brother from bondage and even feeds your animals, the ones that depend on you. And in verse 25, it says, And they made ready the present against Joseph, came at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand into the house, and bowed themselves to him to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare. How are you guys doing? And they said, is your father well? The old man of whom ye spake, is he yet alive? And they answered, thy servant our father is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. Interesting, isn't it? Now Joseph once again becomes that picture of Christ in the house. Who has concern who actually loves them. They might not recognize him, but he loves them. And he, they came to Joseph with humility. They bowed themselves down to him. You see, Joseph had the power of life and death over them. And they respected that. They brought him a gift. And he showed them grace. Once again, it's a picture of Christ in his house and how we should approach God. You see, God has the power over life and death. And the Bible tells us that we are to humble ourselves before him because he is the judge of all. He is our creator. He is omnipotent, holy, beyond our understanding. And when we approach God, we are to bow ourselves down to him out of respect. But now we see Joseph and his reaction to what was going on. In Genesis 43, 29, it says, And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin. The first time he'd seen him for 17 years. He sees, oh, sorry, 20 years, I think. He's the first time he sees his brother for 20 years. His mother's son. He's his only, uh, only brother from the same mother. And said, Is this your younger brother of whom ye spake unto me? And he said, God, be gracious unto thee, my son. And Joseph made haste. He ran, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. It meant he started crying. 
and he saw it where to weep. And he entered into his chamber, into his bedroom, and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself, which means he tried to compose himself, and then sat down for bread, sat down for, him, for the meal, for lunch. And Joseph couldn't contain his emotion after seeing his younger brother after all these years. But he couldn't show them because he had to still play through this particular part. Whatever plan he had, he had to continue this thing. And so he washes his face, goes and has a cry, he washes his face. And then finally we see these last three verses. It says, and they said, so they sat them all down, and they set on for him by himself, and for them by themselves, and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. So the Egyptians ate, it's part of his household, they, the brothers ate before him, and it says, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men marveled one at another. And he took and sent messes, which is the food unto them from before him. But Benjamin's mess, Benjamin's food or portion, was five times so much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So, isn't that a beautiful picture of heaven? Just think about that for a moment. When we're at home with our big brother and we're saved and we will eat in the presence of the king of heaven, the owner of the house. And I love this phrase because it says, and, they, they, and the men marveled one at another. You know, when, you, when you're so shocked about something, you look at each other and saying, what's going on? What are we doing here? Like we're in this, he's a ruler of Egypt. We're meant to be spies. And we're eating, he's, he's having us over for lunch and we're eating together and we're fine. And Simeon's out and everything's looking great. What did we do to deserve this now? Now one day we're going to eat together with our family. One day we will sit down we're going to enjoy a meal together. And I love this because Benjamin ends up getting five times the portion of anyone else. And they didn't ask, there's nothing questioned about that. He gets five times the amount of everyone else. They don't, they, they don't say, how dare he get five times more than me? No, no, they're just wrapped to be there. They're enjoying their food. And the Bible tells us the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it's a, a blessing to be together with your family and just be at peace. The banquet, this banquet, becomes a symbol of what heaven will be like. And you know what heaven will be like? It'll be like being home. Finally, just being home. And Joseph cried when he saw his brothers. So I suspect there's going to be tears in heaven. I think so. I think we're going to be crying when we get home we finally see each other again finally with the ones that we love and we're together with the one who loves us that's the type of joy we have to look forward to with our savior and joseph is the story of joseph's life is so it's so filled with these images 
and these and these pictures of Christ, it's unbelievable. The more you read, the more you see Christ in the life of Joseph. But my challenge to you this morning is, if heaven isn't your home now, if that's not your home, and if this world is the, the place where you feel you belong to, let, let me introduce you to this fellow called a mediator. Because if you're outside the home, that's this world. The Bible tells us that we are strangers and pilgrims to this world. You know, if, you, if you're saved this morning, this is not your home and it's neither my home. We should not be that comfortable here that we aren't longing to be home there. If we're longing for this place, then we are longing for the wrong thing because this is not our home. We do not belong here. And if you're getting too comfortable here, you've got your eyes on the wrong thing. So if you don't have heaven as your home, if that's not what you're looking for, to being home with, your, with your, the one who loves you the most, then I'd like to introduce you to this mediator who can introduce you and invite you into the house. He will listen to you. He will grant you peace. He will explain to you exactly what's going on. And you can have hope of eternal life. You can have the love, the joy, the merriment that, they have, that they're showing here in this simple story when Jesus saves you. The Bible tells us, for by grace he is saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so these fellows prostrated themselves in front of Joseph they didn't even know it was him, but they prostrated themselves in front of him because he was the ruler of the house and the ruler of the entire land. So the Bible tells us when we kneel before God, and the Bible tells us also that there is no other name given among men whereby which you must be saved. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day and every tongue will confess. The question is whether you will do that willingly now, whether you will come to this mediator and he will invite you into the house and you will be adopted into God's family or whether you will later on bow the knee for when it's too late. God bless you. I hope pray this message was a blessing to you. Brother Gaim, would you lead us in a final hymn? Thank you.